Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today's guest is on a mission to lead a reproductive revolution and the company that she founded, Hertility, aims to put an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of women everywhere. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Helen O'Neill. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Honestly, I think there's so much. I almost thought before you came today, that last week I was prepping, I thought, where do I start? Because I suppose where I'm at, you know, I'm a 36-year-old woman. I have got a lot of friends who are either mid-30s, early 30s, late 30s, some 40s, and some 20s. But I think there's a lot of conversation in my peer group right now about you know, people having their first or people thinking that they, if they're not with someone like, oh gosh, how long have I got biological clock ticking, all of that. And I'm also, because I had my son when I was 23. So, and you know, got divorced and I now have also other friends, mum friends who are going through menopause. I've got other friends who are going through divorces and blended families. So there's just so much, I think, when it comes to the topic of female fertility and it just, just touch, there's so many touch points, I think, within, within all of our lives. So I have a lot of questions, but before we dive into them, I just kind of mentioned there, you know, that you're the founder of this company and, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, female founder. I guess we could talk a little bit about that first, what Hertility is all about and why you decided, I know that you're a lecturer as well, why you decided to start this company. So I I think the decision was something that was a long time coming. Um, what was strange was that it wasn't a decision that was a professional one per se. It was just as much a personal one. Um, and it wasn't that I decided to start a company. I decided to find out more. And in order to do so, that's how the company was created. So what I mean by that is that I have spent many, many years doing a master's, a PhD, a postdoc, lecturing master students, medical students, really just immersing myself in the world of women's health, reproduction, um, fertilization, embryology, you name it, all of the different things associated with fertility. But at the end of it, I was none the wiser about my own. And in fact, when you're surrounded by a lot of information, inevitably you're surrounded by quite grim statistics and, you know, what are the chances of and what are the likelihood of and look at the prevalence of. And you can't help but feel, I guess, paranoid that maybe you might be one of them. And I remember one day in the lab looking at a sample from a patient for whom they were undergoing genetic testing for their embryos. So they weren't infertile, but they were undergoing this journey to have a baby and looking at the date of birth thinking, oh my God, it's the same as mine. Like what sign is this to think that here I am really quite blissfully continuing thinking I'm still in my 20s, but really in my 30s thinking, how amazing my ability to ignore those statistics mm. and not apply them to myself. Yes, I had this underlying worry, but not being in that position at all and thinking this woman who's born on the same day as me is undergoing a very different journey and is in a very, as, has, as a result of that, 
gone through a different life stage already. Um, and it really got me thinking. I just thought, well, I'm I'm not in a position to do that financially in, in terms of a relationship, anything actually career wise and feeling so frustrated that it all seemed so unfair that I could work so hard to get to where I was and yet still be unqualified in terms of our global expectation of women, which is that you've only passed the successful criteria of being a woman once you've procreated and thinking, this is is fucked, actually. This is fucked that I firstly just wanted to know. And, you know, when you're when you're in a a field like you, it's an echo chamber, right? You hear all the same stats, you hear all of the same threats, warnings, but also you hear quite frequently about the procedures and how medical uh, medicalized things become quite routine to you. And so quite flippantly, I was told by many of my colleagues, you just freeze your eggs, just freeze your eggs. Easy as that. Easy as that. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, that's fine. And I had literally vitrified, which is to freeze an, an, an egg or a newicide, um, albeit a mouse suicide, because we'd gone undergone different um, experimental procedures, etc., to learn more about it. But being the patient on the side of that was a very different mm. feeling. And I felt quite lost. And all I could think after my first appointment and actually being dismissed and told, you're a baby, come back when you're Don't 35. Worry about it, yeah. <laughs> thinking... Yep. That's just not good advice. But actually, maybe it wasn't bad advice, right? And I just wanted to know, was I was I okay? Actually, all I wanted to know was that reassurance. Am I okay? Am I one of the statistics on the lower end or the higher end or the mid? And that really has just been like the evolution of creating fertility and something that enables women to check in and know where they are personally. Well, so much in there. And I think when you said around education and, you know, you're in that environment because you're literally in the lab. So you're hearing all the stats, hearing all the data, hearing all the information. So, of course, that's that's to a level good thing because you have the knowledge, but it's also overwhelming. And I actually think although people are not in a lab and they're not, you know, doing what you did, I do think, you know, I just spent five minutes looking on Google. And if you just type in anything to do with you know female fertility in the UK you see all of the most popular search terms Mm. so you see all of the questions that other people are looking for and I think because there is so much information and and I suppose in a good way like democratizing you know the literacy of of our health but it's also just like what do you do with that information this is like a like a fire hose of information Mm. that comes at you and the most um, searched questions that came up when I just spent five minutes on Google were is it safe to get pregnant after the age of 35 Is it harder to get pregnant after 35? What are natural ways to improve fertility? How to improve your chance of having twins? How much does fertility treatment cost in the UK? Those were the top searches that people are asking on Google right now in 2024. So that got me thinking. But when you just described that journey that you had yourself, information, 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 what do people do with it? And as I said, there's also a lot of misconceptions as well. So I think that might even be my next question for you, which is, which misconceptions or myths about female fertility would you like to debunk for us today? Um, I think it's mostly around applying one rule or one stat and making that applicable to every woman. Um, I think we really need to move beyond some of the big statements that can be harmful or unhelpful and start to think much more in terms of personalised medicine. The reason we've never been able to create 
personalised medicine type statistics for individuals is because we just don't have the data. And so really we're just lacking in enough information to be for, for anyone to be qualified to give distinct answers. Um, it's part of our biggest mission is to create the largest data set in the world of female fertility and gynecological pathologies so that we can help each individual as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I get annoyed with the whole fertility cliff um, the 35 year old fertility cliff because yeah let's let's maybe zoom in on that because yeah. obviously the word the, the the age 35 35 35 it comes yeah. up a lot now I know um, some other stats actually say 30 and you know it's like there is obviously of course data and, and, and there's truth in this right it's not just a made up number that people mm-hmm. say oh once you get to this age or because we kind of hear both sides I feel yeah. like you hear some people saying don't worry about it you know what have your career do your thing don't rush you can have kids look people are having kids naturally all the time people are having kids when they're 40 don't worry about it then you hear the other side typically people's mothers telling them you have to hurry up your biological clock is ticking and after the age of 30 or dreaded 35 then that's it you've you've had it and so how can both people be saying you know these completely different things statements and is there truth in it i guess there's truth in both statements you'll always hear the success stories of my mum had me in my in her 40s or i naturally conceived when i was 40 or when i was 35 you're less likely to hear the 28, 29, 30-year-olds who are going through quite miserable, um, lonely and quite devastating journeys to have a child because they're not the ones shouting about it. Yes, there are much more, there are many more advocates now for infertility and people talking about their fertility journeys. But up until now, we don't hear those voices. Those are the ones that are muted and are quite frankly just disillusioned with everything and for me I think it's about putting data more more than just data it's about saying what types of individuals are more likely to be at risk of being infertile at 35 and what are the types of individuals and life factors that contribute to that that allow someone to actually be able to conceive beyond that and the biggest I guess misconception which I love that perfect pun about all of it is that it's down to one person. It doesn't matter if you are as fertile as can be at 30, 35 or 40. If your partner is not fertile, you are going to be an infertile couple and you are going to struggle to conceive. And that, I think, is the biggest thing we never talk about is the other side of the coin. Um, You know, conversely, you can be not fertile and your partner is very fertile and you're still you're going to fall within that same bracket it takes two to tango and data doesn't really account for both parties Mm. there are many people who've gone through long and arduous and expensive and and difficult fertility journeys actually sometimes resulting in um divorce and as soon as they get with somebody else they instantly get pregnant and it makes you wonder like why do we not talk more about that other 50%, which is so important when it comes to your fertility. 
Absolutely. This is the thing. It's always missing from the conversation. You're so, I'm so grateful that you said that because I've definitely had, you know, a challenging fertility journey. A lot of people probably don't know that, to be honest, but I had a very challenging fertility journey after I had my first son. And, you know, people just look at you, the woman, and they just go, oh, well, it must be you. And they just kind of, you know, throw their advice on you. Sometimes meaning they mean well, but, you know, as, as, an, as a mum with, you know, I think when my son was maybe two or three or four, when they start school, everybody, especially because I love kids, every Everybody starts looking at you and going, oh, when are you going to have another baby? Yeah. Oh, when are you going to have another baby? They don't know if you've just had a miscarriage. They yeah. don't know if you're doing fertility treatment. They don't know if your husband's Never sperm asked. doesn't work. You know? <laughs> and this is the thing. I also had a friend who had a similar, you know, different but similar experience because her husband had testicular cancer. Mm. And they got told when they were very young that he had testicular cancer and that they were going to have to, I think, take the sperm out before, you know, all these things. And, you know, she had to freeze her eggs and it was all these things. And it was like, oh, would, would we be able to have children in the future? Because they didn't want to have children right there and then. But again, it was all these conversations, discussions, pressures, decisions that the woman has to also, you know, go through your body. If you're going to do fertility treatment, you have to do the hormones, the injections, the things. And as you said before, someone goes, oh, freeze your eggs or, oh, do IVF. Or they just throw these things out as if it's like going to the dentist or, I mean, yeah, it's it's a whole thing and you just thrown in going, okay, just do that. Ta-da, easy solution. And it is so complex. And I think, yeah, for any couples who are experiencing that, it's just a minefield. It's so exhausting. Everybody, like I said, meaning well people will just constantly be telling you, oh, you should drink this, this Chinese tea mm. that I had. Or you should put your legs up the wall when you do this. Or you should do acupuncture. Or you know what, Adrian, you run a lot, don't you? You should probably stop doing that. You should probably yeah. gain weight because you're too slim. But then if you're overweight, you're too fat. And there's just constant it's things. Never ending. And yeah. you're just like, you know what, oh, this is why I didn't probably share that much about it at the time was because I just thought wow this is a lot even just for me and my husband at the time without every single person like wading in so I'm really grateful that you said that actually yeah it's two people you know trying to conceive a baby and often it can be you know really complicated but I guess what's the could you give us an overview so right now current state of and we are focusing at the moment on female fertility in the UK so are there any signals any trends obviously with the research that that broadly speaking are things improving over time are things staying the same are things dramatically getting worse like are there any trends what's the kind of broad overview right now so from um, an infertility trend the number of individuals who are going for IVF are increasing the rate of infertility is increasing. The success rates of fertility treatment have stayed the same for a very long time. Um, and your likelihood within the UK of being referred for NHS funded treatment is very, very slim. So we actually wanted to look because so many people say to me, having a company, um, to me, like I said, I, I didn't want to create a company. I wanted to create something that gave me answers that enabled me when I had conversations with my friends or out to say, here is something you can do because it's very frustrating to be somebody who's dedicated so much of your life to understanding things. And when someone asks you a basic question like, how do I know what my fertility is? Thinking, I should be able to help you. Mm. And knowing that if they're passed through the NHS, they have to wait for at least 12 to 24 months, depending on their age, before they're even assessed and going through different criteria. So it's, you're not eligible if you're single. You're not eligible if you're 
in a relationship with somebody who has a child with a previous person, which is wild. Which is wild. You're Come not on. eligible if your um, if your ovarian reserve is already below a certain level. So, okay, well, surely that would be the people that need help. You're not eligible if your BMI is a certain. You're not eligible if you live within a certain area. For who more than is what, it, eligible? Like well, a the, unicorn, this, basically. This is exactly what we wanted to find out. Like, who is actually eligible? And we looked at data from you know over two hundred thousand women who'd filled out our comprehensive health assessment, given us bloods to say. Of these women trying to conceive or even planning for future babies, how many of them would ever be eligible for NHS funded treatment? 70% would never be eligible. And yet they'd still be told, wait for 12 months and come back, keep trying. And so for me, that is very frustrating to be robbed of the most important thing that you have when it comes to fertility, which is your time. And then only to be told, sorry, you're going to have to go privately. And uh, yeah, time, but also money. Because let's be honest, that is a big divide between people that can and people that cannot. And for myself, when I did fertility treatment and we had to fund it ourselves, because as you said, not eligible... You know, that wasn't something at the time that I could afford, to be Mm. honest. But when you are so desperate Mm. to have a baby, whether that's a sibling for your baby, whether it's your first child, it doesn't matter. You will do anything. Anything. And I think people do become very, you know, I wouldn't, you know, don't use this word lightly, but, you know, I know friends right now that are going through the challenge of trying to conceive their first child. And it puts so much of a strain on so many things. And you become, you can become obsessed. You can become desperate. You can become like, you know, what I mean by obsessed is, you know, constantly tracking every single month, every single thing. It's soul destroying. Yeah. And then if someone says, oh, it's going to cost you this much, you know, what, what will people sacrifice? Essentially, I think people will sacrifice anything, anything. and they will find the money. I always or say they'll... a woman would give you her arm exactly to conceive. Yeah, and, and they might therefore... take a loan or they might get in debt. And you know, people who I, I know people have said that when they've done multiple rounds of failing IVF and ended up with, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of debt, which yeah. they can't afford. Yeah. Like, imagine the stress on top of that. Well, that was the other side of the equation that I just felt like I could send you to the NHS you're not going to get far. I could send you to a private fertility clinic and I don't feel honest doing that because frankly, I as I as an individual, as an academic, as a scientist at the time was like, well, I can't afford that option. So why would I give that, you, that to you as a viable option? And where was that in-between option that enabled you to actually just check in affordably? And that's really where fertility came. So it infuriates me when people say, that £149 for a test that is a full consultation that has a gynecologist written report that has we've spent two years building predictive algorithms on I'm like £149 is not expensive it no. is lit- and we don't even I, I can't tell you how how much we sacrifice to, to bring everything to an affordable level mm. to say this is this is what we can get by. Like yeah. we can we can survive as a company with this amount. Yeah. And everyone says for the amount of work you've done, for mm-hmm. the fact that it's essentially like three appointments in one between analyzing bloods, between taking the health assessment, between uh, all the gynecologists and the report and the tech, you this needs to be more expensive. And I have dug my heels in and said this needs to be affordable to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I feel really passionately about. And I, I guess inevitably you can't please everybody. Um, but that to me was the middle ground that I really wanted to achieve it was something that it, not shoving somebody through a very long and arduous journey in the NHS where you're justifying it um, yep. or sending somebody to, to a private fertility, fertility clinic where essentially they're inevitably going to be put through the mill, right? You don't go to a fertility clinic where they go, here are the things that you might do to improve your fertility. <laughs> well, that's I guess it's not really in their business interest to do that. Yeah, and I guess that's where we come to next because as you said, so if things are, uh, broadly speaking, not improving, 
I suppose there's modern world challenges. So lifestyle, environment, I'm always thinking that because I think this is the work, you know, work in the health and wellbeing industry and I have done for a long time and I always think about that. Okay, so is our modern world lifestyle? What are the things, whether it's stress and, you know, stress is finally, I think, getting its moment and mm-hmm. people understanding the impact it has on, you know, on our biology. Is it diet? Is it, you know, what is it? But are there some things, hopefully there are, that people can do to regardless of whether they're trying to get pregnant right now, but just to improve their overall fertility. And what are those things? Are they just the obvious things that we kind of yeah. should be doing? Sleeping well, eating well? Because if you're doing all those things already, it's quite frustrating, isn't it? When someone says, well, healthy lifestyle and people go, I couldn't, like, I I'm couldn't doing all the things. Healthier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I do think it's hard when you're given advice that you're like, I'm trying my best to do all of those things. For me, what's quite, quite strange is when I look at our data, because I'm looking for a key distinct markers that could lead somebody to be at a higher risk for whether it's a pathology, whether it's a hormone imbalance. And then we look at the most basic of things that are contributing to reduced fertility, like alcohol intake, like smoking, now vaping. We just submitted our research to present at the European um, Society for Reproductive Embryology, statistically showing that vaping actually does decrease your ovarian reserve. And so it's amazing to have a, a significant amount of data to back that, mm. where before there's a lot of data on smoking and mm-hmm. its impact, but none on vaping. Um, What's the data there on alcohol? Because I know some friends who, as soon as they started trying to conceive, were like, I'm not drinking because I'm trying to get pregnant. Yeah. But if you've been drinking, you know, <laughs> quite a lot for the last 15 years, is that going to be playing a part as well? I think that's one of the biggest generational differences between you know, millennials have been a generation that have drank a lot and have done so from a very young age. And that's compounded by the fact that, you know, you know, if you start drinking at 15, uh, which a lot of people do, mm. um, and then consistently throughout your 20s, and especially in university where it's almost seen as a rite of passage that you ruin yourself, um, which I, I actually despise that. I despise mm. the fact that it's like they're just in college it's a college lifestyle, it's a university lifestyle, whatever. Um, and I just, I, I hope that it doesn't bleed into another generation. And I think wh- we're where people are now starting to attack big food. You know, first it was like big pharma, then then big tobacco. Now people are really attacking big food. Mm, ultra processed food. foods. Yeah. I think next is, is alcohol. Like, right. And this push to normalize a drug that has the the biggest impact on our our health, our mental health, our well-being, on societal structures, like we probably wouldn't need police at nighttime if it weren't for the fact that alcohol is such an enabler for yeah. violence, for, yep. you know, just danger and sloppy behaviour. But it's been so normalised and accepted and actually pushed yeah. that we have people who've spent basically 25 years drinking pretty heavily. Um and expecting everything to be fine. And that's that's unfair and it's shit. But actually, we really tend to separate out our expectations for a damage. And what I mean by that is when you smoke, you say it affects my lungs. When you drink, you say it affects my liver. But actually, when you drink, watch somebody, they lose their balance, they lose their cognition, they lose their... Um, their clothes, <laughs> their inhibitions. They lose everything, yeah. right? It affects so much more. How can we exclude our ovaries from that? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't. Um, but nobody really cares to deep dive into that. And so one of the, the most stark realities from our data was looking to see of those who were actively trying to conceive, how many were drinking like a lot? Um, and... 
close to 50% of people are drinking still. Okay. But nearly 10% of those are drinking way above the national limit. I mean, more than more than 14 units, like a lot, a lot. Yeah. So you're like, that's that's something we could easily remove. But then when you go to other more extreme things like you that you would think are intuitive, like don't don't take drugs. Please don't take drugs while you're trying to conceive. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, But 8.6% of people who are actively trying to conceive are still taking recreational drugs. Mm. (laughs) And you just think, okay, we need to have a conversation about what's good for you and what's bad for you. But nobody's going to start with the most basic of things, which is stop drinking altogether. Definitely cut out the drugs. Yeah. yeah, so lifestyle pieces. And I think, you know, I guess, because it can be quite stressful, can't it? And we've said, you know, some of the kind of doom and gloom and the kind of some of the stats that come up straight away. Yes, they might be true about, you know, your egg reserve and the biological clock. Those stats, I'm sure, are true. You can tell us. But I think the holistic piece and mm. the mind piece and the emotion piece yeah. is what's often missing. Yeah. And as I said, when I had that experience of, of fertility treatment, it was so clinical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clinical. Everything from the measurements, the bloods, the injections, the the invasive procedures, everything is like just medical. And at the time, I mean, this was how many years ago? Uh, this was eight years ago. So maybe it's changed. But there was no conversation really around mental you, health, as a me, person. how I felt. There was no conversation about emotion, feeling. And I think because also I'm not that kind of person either. I tend mm. to lean more into like data and facts. Give me, mm. give yeah. me, you know, I wanted to know, okay, if I'm going to go through this, what are the odds? What are the chances? Give me numbers. Yeah. I wasn't probably at the time, I would be now, I wasn't really that kind of holistic. Oh, how do I actually feel about mm. this? Or how do I actually feel today? But I think regardless of whether someone's doing facility treatment, whether they're trying to conceive or the single person who's like, you know what, I'm not in a relationship right now where I can even have this conversation. What needs to be done, I suppose? How much, you know, in, in with fertility, with the data, the research, as you said, you're seeing, okay, the stats and the data around things like age and alcohol and these things. What support do you think people need emotionally? How is our like emotional well-being being taken care of when it comes to our fertility concerns? One of the first questions that we ask in our health assessment when we're onboarding you is, how are you feeling? And it's amazing the feedback that people will say, I'm actually just so grateful you asked. But far what we ask, are, how are you feeling? Um, calm, confident and relaxed, <laughs> neutral, stressed or completely stressed and overwhelmed. And 60% of people categorize themselves as stressed or completely stressed and overwhelmed. And that is shocking like that to me is a true reflection of the society we live in um that we live such lives that are just impacted by the rush the work the go the impulses the interruptions the technology that we're just really eroding any sense of peace um do you think it's also that people at that stage, it's almost sadly because of what we've talked about with the system, it's like a last resort. Mm. So they've already kind of done and tried things and then they're kind of coming to the not, site. And no, not necessarily. I don't like they're not coming to us because they're at their last attempt. Weirdly, 25% of all people, and this is out of 350,000 people, 25% are between 18 and 25 years old. Right. They're just curious about their reproductive health. Okay. But like, they're still saying, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed yeah, out. Just because their lifestyles are stressed. It's just ever, everyone's stressed and overwhelmed. Yeah. Like, it's, it's amazing. In a weird way, technology has made everything so much easier for every everyone. And yet, it's damaging. Everyone can acknowledge the damage that social media and our, and our lives and 
just constantly being able to be contacted is is having. Um, so that to me is something that just needs to be acknowledged so hugely. What's more is that when you think about this again comes to the ability to separate out and just isolate our our organs and pathologies and be like this is we're looking at your reproductive health and therefore we will ask about how you menstruate how you bleed any cramps any symptoms related to that but actually when we look we ask about a lot of symptoms you know what are you experiencing any of this any of the following and the top 10 symptoms five of them are related to mental health anxiety low mood depression anger and we cannot separate out our mental health with our overall physical and reproductive health. Like it's insane to think that we know that our ovaries and our pituitary and our hypothalamus are all so connected in this beautiful system that keeps us going, whether it's our metabolism, our sleep, our skin, our sex drive, our fertility, our menstrual cycles. We know that the organs in the brain are producing hormones and they're connected to the organs in our pelvis. And yet... We separate. We say, yeah. let's cut your head off and only deal with your downstairs. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, and that just made me think then of what we've all just collectively lived through over the last few years. If you think yeah. about the pandemic, I know it feels like so long ago. We've all just moved on and we're all just getting on with our lives. You know, I was on a flight two weeks ago and I literally thought, wow, there's like not a single person on this flight is wearing a mask. And if you were to wear a mask, people would just look at you like, yeah. are you nuts? Why is you wearing a mask? But let's be honest, it wasn't that long ago you couldn't even get on a flight, let alone if you weren't wearing a mask, you wouldn't be allowed on the flight. So there's all this thing we've been collectively lived through this experience of fear, of anxiety, yeah. of stress, a trauma, you know, an emotional and mental and physical trauma. And not to mention having COVID and being ill. And I think, that, you know, I don't know, obviously we don't really know, I guess, the long impact of that. But I think sometimes... I'll include myself in this modern world is so fast and we're so impatient that we kind of think yeah but that was last year yeah. that was last year Adrienne that's not, that's not affecting me now you know, I, know. I was stressed I, about I coughed the, the other day and I was like someone said have you done a Covid test I was like that's so 2022 do you know what I mean <laughs> throwback <laughs> nostalgic but I think what I mean is that if, if something happened a year ago Maybe something happened five years ago. Maybe something happened 10 years ago, yeah. which you may be, you know, the body keeps the score. Maybe there's emotional, whether it's fear, trauma, stress in the body. And it's like, if we don't deal with that, whether it's, I don't know, people having talking therapy, doing more mindful practices, trying to downregulate their bodies out of that stressed turning state. turning their phone off. Turning their phone off. Just like switching off. Yeah. Coming out of that stressed state to be able to, I suppose, like let their bodies do the natural processes, mm -hmm. to, to heal, to rest, to be able to do the things it's supposed to do. Because I think we've all kind of just, yeah, tried to forget that it ever happened. But I'm sure there's a lasting impact on most of us when it comes to our, our mental state. Absolutely. And I, and not not forgetting the fact that we all did wear masks and that we weren't around people and that we essentially suppressed, you know, everyone got sick as soon as we were able to, you know, see people again because the bacteria that you're going to encounter with normal interactions with people is going to be there. You know, we, um, without wanting to be lynched, had thousands of people contacting us saying, I've, I've had the vaccine and I'm, and I'm waiting on my period uh, so I can do the test, but it's not here. Um, and I, I just, it's, it's so, and, it's very frustrating as a scientist that that topic has become something that you cannot talk about without being put as an anti-vaxxer or anything else. 
but conspiracy theory or if you, you saw that they did, exactly you saw and it was just i guess for me uh, we tried to do a trial but then a second wave hit and people became second vaccinated um and we just wanted to better understand i was like i'm not going to make any statement until we have the data but we still have so many people contacting us saying it really messed them up and we d- we didn't put the safeguards in place or the necessary and so basic um infrastructure to just ask people did this affect your menstrual cycle let's start let's ask yeah. like it was to me it was like the largest the the, the, the largest clinical trial that was conducted globally and we missed, missed off missed like opportunity. We just it was because it was women's health right yeah nobody, nobody asked yeah. nobody asked just it's a, it's very simple just ask the question <laughs> it's yeah. allow people to monitor allow people to report but that that wasn't in place so well, looking forward then. So if someone's listening to this podcast, I'm trying to think who might be listening to this. If someone's listening to this podcast, regardless of their circumstance, situation, age right now, why might they come to Hertility? Why might they go to the site? What would that look like? What would they? What would the process be like for them? So for example, someone like myself versus somebody in their 20s who okay. is single and maybe wants to have kids in the future. I mean, I encourage everybody, irrespective of their desire to have children or not, to do a fertility test. It even though the name is Hertility, that sounds like for just fertility, we and we did start with that basic question, you know, can I tell if I'm fertile? Because we have included all of the different risk factors for PCOS, for endometriosis, for, you know, thyroid, for other hormone related conditions, for physical conditions like, you know, physical manifestations within your uterus like adenomyosis or fibroids. Because we've really taken into account all of the symptoms involved in all of those, it's much more of a broad gynecology screening tool and to me if we're if, if everyone is sh- almost shamed into getting their smear test like you, you gotta get your smear test otherwise you're an asshole um <laughs> that's the scientific term for it but we really do give each other shade if you haven't done your smear test we're like oh i haven't done my smear and your chances of cervical cancer are maybe one in 164 but your chances of um pcos could be one in 10 one in you know it's that to me is like we all should be screening also as as we get older your chance of developing a fibroid goes up if you're a black woman your chances is even higher so that was essentially what we built into fertility that health assessment though when you sit and you do it is quite lighthearted and sounds very um informative and we're using really positive language because we wanted to use that health assessment to both engage people educate them but also reassure them that the reason we're asking a question isn't just to find out. It's because there's a reason for it. Take, for example, we ask about if you've had any previous sexually transmitted infections. It's a personal question, but we need to know if you've had either chlamydia or gonorrhea because those are infections that can sometimes block your fallopian tubes. Mm. So unless we know that and you had perfectly within range hormones, we're, we're not going to be able to advise as to why you might not be getting pregnant because you might have a blocked fallopian tube. So that helps us to encourage you to go for an ultrasound scan and ha- have a look. Um, so that is why I think everyone should do it. It just basically starts with a really comprehensive health assessment that you could do from your phone um, at home. And then following that health assessment, we'll assign a panel of hormones for you that's most appropriate to you. And as a baseline, everyone gets their ovarian reserve, their thyroid, their menstrual cycle um, hormones checked. But should you have triggered that maybe you have PCOS, we'll also test your androgens. So it's very much tailored based on the potential risk that you might have. And we built that based on all of the international diagnostic criteria and guidelines. So it's it's very robust. Like this is this is 
there's anything that's by the book, this is by the book. But also taking into account the fact that the books are outdated and are, are built on insufficient data. So we're constantly revising the questions that we ask. And our longer term goal is to redefine all of the criteria, like okay. redefine it per ethnicity. What's your risk as an individual? Redefine it per age group. What's your risk as at a certain age? And if you have any other comorbidities, if you have any other autoimmune conditions, taking the whole thing into account. Anyway, I digress because I'm never able to tell, tell this story simply. <laughs> you, do, you do the health assessment, you do the blood test from home, you post it to our labs and you get the results within a week. And the results take into account all of the things you've told us in your health assessment plus the blood results. So we, we look at what are the things that could have caused your hormones to be either elevated or deficient? And what are the things that, you know, you've told us that might have contributed to that, to that so that we're really extrapolating all of the information you've told us plus your, plus your blood results in an online, kind of like a virtual clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it's like when you go through the experience, you view, you view your results and the clinic door is open on your screen and it says welcome to your virtual clinic and there's a letter from the gynecologist one of our team and all of a full explanation of each of the hormones what the hormone is why did we test it what it means for you and then all of the actionable insights that you need and then all of your next steps so um, should you wish to speak to a fertility advisor a gynecologist a counsellor a nutritional support, they're all there and you can book in a consultation. Should you need a, a pelvic ultrasound scan, you can book in and have a consultation. Should you need a prescription, you can talk to one of our doctors and your prescription will arrive at your house that day. Um, wow, so I'm going to run home and do this. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I'm actually not kidding. I'm not kidding. I think, you know, it's as you said, regardless of your, you know, whether you want to have kids right now, whether you don't, I think that information, and it's funny, I spoke to a a dietitian on this podcast very recently and we were talking about at-home testing and she wasn't of course talking about fertility testing it was more about intolerance testing yeah. and she was saying that she's kind of you know so sick of like these that you know because the efficacy of, of them and they're not you know but there's no next steps for a lot of them people just get this thing that says cut out all these foods and they're just left at yeah. home like what but actually and it was quite funny because i said on the episode with her i said listen i am the person who does all the at-home <laughs> tests i was just like i am that person sell them to me because yeah. i'm always that person and the reason i say it is because i do think that you know knowledge of your own body being empowered to make an informed decision feeling as though you have some you know I think there's nothing worse than if you've ever been in an experience where you've been to a doctor or maybe you've been in a hospital or maybe you've been with a healthcare professional where you felt really helpless and you don't know you know what even questions you should ask for example it's really just yeah I don't know it's a really awful experience and so I think I think yeah maybe because of experiences in my life I've just always been like right the more information you know about your own body what's under the hood the better and it's not always going to be good news like it's not always going to be a good news story but yeah. would you rather not know okay yeah. this maybe is for concern or maybe this is not to scare you not to you know scaremonger you or to but to drive you to take action because yeah. what's the alternative honestly nothing is as scary as being without any options yeah, and this whole, you know, there's a reason we say ignorance is bliss yeah. because it's, you know, it's not helpful. It's not useful to just kind of go, oh, well, I don't know. So, yes, I'm I'm definitely more on the team that's like, just test just everything. Test I'm like everything. every year, I'm like, I want to have a full MOT, just like I take my car for an MOT and yeah. service and yep. pay for that. I'm like, yes. can I have an MOT and service, please? Because yep. <laughs> I'm getting older. That's so. one of my biggest bugbears is that it is a legal requirement to have an MOT on your car, but nothing as a human being. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... So yeah. it's like fertility, MOT and service, yes. you know? Great. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, so what is next? What is next for fertility? Because you said, you know, the, the the end goal and the end vision, but right now, you know, like, yeah, what's the what are you most excited about? I suppose as as the founder of this company, I am excited that we have just built version one of our app. Uh, it will not be ready until the summer because we are. <laughs> obsessed with detail um, and so this is going to be an amazing companion it's like a gynecologist in your pocket whereby you can log your symptoms you can log your uh, periods you can book a consultation you can blue- view your blood results we're adding additional testing so that we can say you know let's let no stone go unturned and this is really like this you know I mean we have tools for almost everything, mm-hmm. right? We have apps for almost everything. I love City Mapper. It tells me how I will get to every location on every every form of transport. And the infrastructure that is involved in doing that, it's very clever. But I want that for my own body. I want to be told whether I'm, you know, whether my hormones are imbalanced, whether the reason I feel like shit is because of something I'm doing myself, i.e. <laughs> my lifestyle, mm. or because I, there is something actually wrong with me. And so many people um, self-exclude from treatment or help because they just blame themselves, right? Mm. Is it because I'm not sleeping? Is it because I'm, you know, drinking too much, eating too little or vice versa? And we're all very prone to blaming ourselves and excluding ourselves from the possibility that actually it might be something out of our own control mm. and that something could actually help us. And or that it's not real. It's so, not, for example, yeah. the kind of chemical imbalance of the brain of a hormone that's missing, for example, like progesterone, it's that it's not real and it's just you just feel bad. So it's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, do something that's going to boost your mood or, you yeah. know, go to, you know, human connection, go and hang out with your friends or like you said, you know, have a glass of wine, do something fun, listen to music, go for a run. The list of things you oh should God. do, yeah. you, goes on and on and on. And so you're right. We berate ourselves and do those things and wonder why, still well, don't feel good. still don't feel good. Yeah. And if you've got a chemical imbalance in the brain and you're lacking a hormone no amount of you know salmon and yoga is going to replace it exactly and and quite shockingly 60 percent of people maybe maybe 62 actually um we're constantly refreshing but 62 percent of people who do a test have at least one out of range hormone Mm. so we're and this is this is reflected in global statistics right (laughs) globally we know that one of the biggest one of the like the most prescribed drug in the world is for hormone imbalance so um we should acknowledge that as a society that maybe our hormones are under attack due to the external stimuli chemicals stress ultra processed food like we need to be we should be fighting back and monitoring what our hormones are doing because they are under attack Mm. and we need to look after ourselves 
gosh yes well maybe that'll be the next thing because especially now I'm having a stepdaughter as well I'm also considering the next generation of women and girls and if you think you know some of the things that you just said like the the environment and I, again not to go into that box of a conspiracy theorist but I, you know I heard someone this week talking about like toxicity and essentially just like the toxicity of products and things that we're just covering ourselves with and spraying on ourselves and just putting in our air and on our bodies and on our skin and thinking well does that relate you know is there, there is actually nothing research? conspiracy about the fact that we are polluted from our products, from the atmosphere, from our from every mm. aspect of but our lives. But is there research that focuses like, yeah. directly? Yeah, that's saying. Oh okay, my god, the, the more research of this, would make you sick. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Well, if we do a part two, Helen, then yeah. maybe we can dive into that because it's yeah, it's something that again you can feel empowered by because you can say, oh, actually, I didn't realize I'm going to go look at the products in my house, yeah. look at this ingredient, and chuck it out. And I'm not going to spray that on my face every day yeah. because, of course, I mean, I am guilty as you know anyone else of just being like oh this smells nice oh this feels nice oh yeah. this looks nice put it on my skin you yeah. know do we really know what we're slathering on our faces every day i know and we we look and we examine the food that we eat and say okay i'm 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 consuming this and we don't apply the same consumption rule to what we put on our skin but our skin is an absorbent the biggest organ, organ. yeah the biggest and one. we are consuming chemicals on a daily basis through the skincare routines that people have. So yikes. Save that for part two. Yeah. All right. Well <laughs> don't want to depress anyone today. I know I did say that, didn't I? It's like <laughs> this is the power hour, but you know, it's um I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I think it is informative and it's not scaremongering, but it's essentially information and I've really enjoyed the conversation. So before we conclude, Helen, I have to ask you, because it's the Power Hour podcast, about the power hour. Now the concept of power hour, put very simply, is the first hour of your day. Now, I've spoken to so many people on the show in the last five years about what they choose to do with the first hour, what they choose to avoid, if they have a special routine, if they just go with the flow, what time the day starts for them. And I always love this part of the show because I get to find out from so many fascinating, interesting, wonderful people what motivates them when they first open their eyes in the morning to get up and live their life and do their day. So typically, I know you have a young daughter, typically what does the first hour of your day include? Uh, every single night my four and a half year old will get into my bed <laughs> it doesn't matter I don't know it's never the uh, a set time could be midnight oh in the night in the she doesn't start in oh bed. no yeah oh. she's yeah, no in the night she comes in um, and so uh, in the morning this morning it was quarter to six um, she will typically say do you want to make a smoothie <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is a cute alarm. <laughs> and it is a cute alarm. So um, we go downstairs. My hard and fast rule is that I do not take my phone off airplane mode. Um, it is kept on airplane mode until she goes to school because nobody That's gets nice. access to my brain at that hour of the morning because we are essentially like I said, eroded for the rest of the day. And it's amazing to think that someone can have access to your mainframe. Anyone, whether it's a notification on LinkedIn, an email, a WhatsApp, a text. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable yeah. how impacted we are by notifications yeah. all day. And as a result, you go through this emotional roller coaster without inviting that roller coaster. You know, like when most people sit on a roller coaster and they strap in and they paid. Like <laughs> when you um, receive a message that is like, we need to do this. It's either stressful, it's happy, it's sad, it's, you know, could funny. Be anything, it, could be, yeah. it could be anything, but you are giving your attention to that. And so I opted 
not even that long ago, maybe a year ago, to say no one gets my attention unless I've chosen to give it in that my first few hours of the morning because firstly your cortisol is raised in the morning to get you up and get you going and so you those things actually impact you a lot more more yeah right so I don't want to be impacted I want to be able to give my full undivided attention to my daughter because the day takes over and I think those those hours are special so that's what I do couldn't agree more and it's (laughs) it's great when you said that about LinkedIn if you imagine I often say to people, free time is not the same as availability. Yeah. And if you imagine like any person who could connect with you on LinkedIn or someone that you work with or someone that just like walking into your house at yeah. six o'clock in the morning or even just they wouldn't call you, you know, for example, yeah. they just call you six o'clock in the morning. And you're still like in your pajamas just being like, hey, let's talk about this work thing that we need yeah. to solve today. It'd be so weird. Or inevitably we... asking you for something. Yeah. And so without having done anything at all, you owe somebody something. Mm. And whether whether they've messaged you with an ask or not, they've still messaged you with the hopes of a reply. And so you owe somebody something. So you've started your day in debt. Yeah. Like, it's just, and I am in perpetual debt of owing an email reply or a WhatsApp reply. And I just, oh my gosh, you should look at my WhatsApp. I mean, I, you, I, yeah, it's I, basically I, all these groups that I don't look at because if you open it, there's the ticks. So basically, yeah. if I'm in a WhatsApp group, just, you best believe I am not going to respond. No. I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to be active in the group. I am not going to read the message. So don't say to me, did you not see it in the group? That's No, my, I didn't. The amount of times people start a, me- start a meeting with me, did you see my email? <laughs> No, I did not. No. Especially if you sent it very <laughs> but it's, early. Yeah, it's very invasive. So yeah. I'm, I've decided, no, unless I'm choosing, not, you're not coming in. <laughs> Sounds like a good start to me. Dr. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I know, as I said, I've got a lot of friends who are going to be tuning in to this one. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. As always, I appreciate it. If you think somebody would benefit from hearing this conversation today, then please, of course, share it with them and tune in next Tuesday when I'll be back with another episode. See you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 